You are now tuned in to the Decoding Success Podcast, where we reveal game-changing habits, formulas, and routines from the world's most successful individuals to help you think and live larger. What is going on? It is your host, Matt Labrie, and you are rocking with us on an all-new episode of the Decoding Success Podcast. If you are new, we want to welcome you to the show. You picked a great episode to tune into. If you're a returning member of our amazing community of listeners, welcome back. Equally excited to have you. Now, we have the honor, the privilege of hosting some freaking successful ass individuals, and today is no different. In fact, today we're joined by an individual that single-handedly changed my life with just one book. You know, 200 pages in a book drastically changed my life, and I felt super compelled to be able to bring this individual on to dive deeper onto those topics, as well as hitting on some other ones, because I know that I'm not the only one that needs to hear the message within that book, but even bigger than that, go deeper on those topics and ask questions that just spurred when I was reading that. So today's guest is Gay Hendricks, leader in the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind therapies for more than 45 years. After earning his PhD in counseling psychology from Stanford, Gay served as professor of counseling psychology at the University of Colorado for 21 years. Now, he's written more than 40 books, including one of my favorites called The Big Leap. Now, that's exactly what this episode is called. It's called Taking the Big Leap. Now, on top of the Big Leap, one thing I really admire about Gay is the fact that he's been able to have a relationship, a successful one nonetheless, with his partner, Kate. For 35 years, they co-authored a book called Conscious Loving. I would highly suggest checking it out if you are like me and want to optimize and maximize your relationship with your significant other. Now, Gay has offered seminars worldwide. He's appeared on more than 500 radio and television shows, including Oprah. Like, hey, we're hosting someone that was on Oprah. That is amazing. Oprah, CNN, CNBC, 48 Hours, and others. In addition to his work with the Hendrix Institute, Gay is currently continuing his new mystery series that began with the first rule of 10. Now, we're diving into a whole lot of amazingness today, to say the least. So I just want to give a shout out to you for tuning in, adding value to your day through this show. If you find this to be valuable, what I'm going to ask you to do is make sure you're sharing it with your community with your friends, your mastermind groups, your co-workers, your staff, your employees, your family, everyone in between, seriously, because there's a lot in here. We're going to digest a lot of information in this episode. So I just wanted to throw that out there before we get to that so we're not forgetting to you know share the good word, especially in the crazy times that we're experiencing in this world. No matter where you're tuned in from right now, there's crazy times everywhere. So I just want to make sure that we're spreading the positivity. And without further ado, we bring to you my friend, Gay Hendricks. Gay, first and foremost, I want to express my gratitude to you for joining us today. I'm super excited to have you. As I mentioned before, we even started recording this. I picked up the book, The Big Leap, right here, man. This book is an absolute game changer. So welcome to the show. Really excited to have you today. Thank you very much. Well, what's in The Big Leap really changed my life, so I felt obligated to share it with the world. And I'm I'm so glad it's kind of become the Bible of the coaching movement, and I'm very grateful to all the millions of folks out there who find it useful. Yes, and that's exactly why you're here. I want to be able to decode this book with you personally and amplify your new book, which is coming out in May that we just discussed as well. Gay, how we kick this show off is by asking every interviewee how they personally define success. Main reason being, I want to explain this to you, is I... I, understand that everyone could have their own definition of success. And I think that's really important that we all do and we don't let society define it for us. So I'm curious, how do you find yourself defining success today? For me, success is having everything you really want and enjoying everything you really have. So to me, it doesn't matter if a person wants to live in a monastery cell with one chair and one cot. If that's what the person wants, beautiful. They're wealthy because so many people have material wealth but are always wanting more, 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 so they never really enjoy anything. But for me, I guess about, well, 25 years ago was when I jumped into that category that most people would call wealthy thanks to Oprah. Um, and she lives not too far from us here, where we live uh, here in Southern California. So a bow in her direction for her contributions to my uh, and my family's wealth. But um, to me, I 
I used to have a lot more. Like 25 years ago, we had a business building and we had a townhouse and we had a mountain house and then we had a piece of rental property. And it seemed like every time I would walk in the room to say something to my wife, there would be some problem that we needed to discuss about one of these things. And so we, we wised up and said, let's start right-sizing. We didn't call it downsizing. And now we live in one home we love, and we each have a car that we love, but I don't want more than one, and I don't want more than one house, and I don't want more than one wife, you know, so I've crafted (laughs) my life to really enjoy what I have. And to me, that's ultimate wealth. I love that. I absolutely love that. Now, what did it take for you to get to that point? Let's, let's connect the dots here. Let's go back. Who was gay in high school? I mean, I know you were born and I believe raised as well in Florida. Correct me if I'm wrong. So who, who was gay back then? Okay. Well, let me tell you what I was. First of all, I have to show you what I look like now, which is uh, about six feet tall and um, about 180 pounds. So I'm kind of have an athletic build now. But if you had seen me 60, 70 years ago, you wouldn't believe it because I was born fat. I was one of those babies that gained weight in the first year of their life and had rolls of fat on them. And by the second year of my life, I was chubby. And by the fifth or sixth year, I had to go into that special section to get my clothes called Huskies. And um, so anyway, I was always struggled with my weight. Well, I had, when I was 24, a big wake-up call where I realized, it was complicated, but I realized I was more than all my programming. I found this place, what I call pure consciousness inside that doesn't have any programming on it. And I think you and I and every other human have it as our birthright, but I'd never discovered this. You know, I thought I was my body, but then I realized I also had this wealth of emotion inside me, and I also had all these aspirations and yearnings that I had never opened up to. And so by the time I was 24, I was weighed 200 and, I'm sorry, 340 pounds. So instead of 180 pounds. So that's like an entire other human being I was carrying around inside me. So... What I did was I went very radical. For the next year after this wake-up, I ate only foods that I'd never eaten before. I, I discovered fruits and vegetables, which I love dearly now, but I'd never really... For me, when I, when I was a 300-pounder, it was always a cheeseburger or the Philly cheesesteak. That was one of my total comfort foods. We had this great guy who had moved down to Philadelphia to Florida and made these fabulous uh, cheesesteaks. And so I probably had two or three of those a week, you know, so that was like the kind of food I ate. Now I would probably go into some kind of shock if I ate (laughs) one of those. But um, anyway, so everything changed for me that year. And it's gradually, to me, it's been a process of learning to love myself and find out who I really am and what my real goals are. You know, like you, my life didn't really come into focus until I figured out what I really wanted to do. And that to do now, to be able to do what I most love to do. And I've pretty much been able to do that for the past 30 or 40 years since I discovered the stuff in the big leap. You know, there's an old uh, old Turkish uh, proverb that says, if a bald man finds a cure, he will surely use it on himself first. Well, I used everything in the big leap just like that for years and years and years in my work with my clients before I ever sat down and wrote the book um, 15 years ago. And so to me, the material in the big leap has changed my life profoundly because it enabled me to find out why I was limiting myself. I was stuck under a cloud of old programming that went way, way, way back. But I'm here to tell you that we are more than our programming. It doesn't matter what race, gender, whatever difference human beings have. The thing that unites us all is that access to pure consciousness inside, direct access to the creative forces of the universe. 
And that's what I want people to tap into. That's the ultimate payoff in a way for really discovering the material in the big leap because it gets you on the same wavelength as what created everything else in the universe. And that's a very powerful place to come from because it takes you out of the position of being a consumer of creativity and puts you in the position of being the wholesaler or the producer. And I always say, don't get your spirituality retail, get it wholesale, you know, directly make sure you are experiencing in your own being what you most deeply believe to be true about human beings. Right. That's powerful. Now, Gabe, before we jump into the big leap, and I'm, I'm really excited to dive into that, I would just want to make sure I'm not skipping any steps here. I'm curious what you believe is the process to finding out what you truly want in life. You mentioned it. You mentioned at 24, you know, you had that revelation per se, and things started to change for you in that moment. Now, what if someone's listening to this right now, and they're kind of just going with the flow. They may be doing something because their parents wanted them to do it, you know, from the get-go when they were first born, like, hey, I want you to be a lawyer, and now they're a lawyer. You get what I'm saying? So, what is your opinion, your perspective, your experience with being able to find what it is you truly truly want when it comes to knowing who you truly are? Here's the first thing we do here when people come to us. We ask them to go in a room by themselves for 10 minutes, not a very long period of time, but we ask them to go in for little 10-minute chunks of time and live with a wonder question. And here's one of the wonder questions that um, I'll give you one of the ones that we charge $10,000 a day for people to uh, use. One of them is... What is it do I most love to do? What do I most love to do? It's also in the big leap. If you get in the habit of asking yourself that question and making decisions based on what you most love to do, I guarantee you that success will follow. I have not seen it be otherwise in my long work with people. Katie and I have worked with close to 5,000 couples here in relationship counseling as well as in our seminars. And we've also worked with about 20,000 individuals in coaching situations and businesses and other situations. That's a lot of hours we've put in there. And I can tell you that human beings are just beginning to tap our potential. You know, we've worked with Oscar winners or Grammy winners or whatever who look like they are operating at the top of their potential, but realize that they're upper limiting themselves still. And because what will often happen is they'll have a big success like win a Grammy or something and then turn around and sabotage their personal lives or turn around and up their addiction or turn around and get into hassles with their um, partner uh, or their manager. So, uh, you know, we've seen practically every version of the upper limit problem. But basically what people have to do to really transform themselves is put a lifetime benign spotlight on when you upper limit yourself, when you find yourself worrying or when you find yourself stuffing yourself with stuff that isn't good for you or drinking too much or sleeping too much or whatever your thing happens to be. Whenever you see that, you ask yourself, hmm, what is the creative potential that's trying to break through here? Because I can promise you that underneath all of the things we call addictions, is creative connection trying to happen. And because we're afraid of that big creative connection, that constant, oh, wow, feeling, we we limit ourselves so we kind of live in less than that. I have to show you something. One of my assistants came in a while back with this great um, bumper sticker. If you're not in awe, you're not paying attention. (laughs) Right. I love that. And, you know, because what we're really talking about is in in the big leap is living a very different kind of life where you're not limited by your programming. Well, you know, because I've seen you spoke about lawyers a, a while ago. I guess I've worked with upwards of three or four hundred attorneys over the years who have come here to change some aspect of their life, sometimes with their a spouse or sometimes, uh, you know, just because of executive coaching. But I'll tell you one thing I've heard more than any other thing from my attorney clients. It almost chills me to say it, but what they will often say is some version of this. They will say, I'm at the top of my game. 
I'm bringing in the reliable five or six hundred thousand dollars a year. My wife loves it. My kids love it. They get to fly first class everywhere, you know. And so, um, but they've all said some version of this. They say, but if I find, if I feel like, I feel like inside, if I keep doing it, I'm going to kill myself. And that's not just pertains to attorneys, because I've certainly heard other people say that. But a lot of times, I think it plagues people in the professions, particularly because of what's in the big leap. They are called on constantly to remain in their zone of excellence. And in the zone of excellence, you're producing lots of good stuff that everybody else wants you to produce. You're being elected chairman of the year, and you're being honored by the local yada yada club and all of that. But... Something inside is saying, your genius isn't being tapped. And so I want people who read The Big Leap or have this conversation with us to go inside and say, what is my ultimate creative dream here? What do I most want to produce? I recommend boiling it down to three to five things. I don't recommend going past five. You could probably list a hundred, but boil it down to the three to five things that you most want to have or be in your life. Because I've watched people like I remember my um, dear friend and mentor, Max Weissman, he was a medical doctor when I met him, and he was up in his probably 70s when I met him, and he was a very vibrant, whoosh guy. He told me that he'd been in practice 30 years, and I said, well, what were you doing up until your 40s? And he said, I was a successful attorney. And so he, he found it was killing him when he was 40 years old. And so he wanted to go back and go to medical school, but he couldn't get a single place to take, to take him because he was too old. One place would take him somewhere in Holland, but he had six weeks to get there and he didn't speak a word of Dutch. So he had to learn medical school grade Dutch in six weeks before he got there. But he pulled it off and then went on to have a great practice. And God rest his soul, uh, he was an inspiration to so many of us because he, uh, you know, he sparkled throughout his life. And I think people have that sparkle who go in search of their true genius. Right. That's powerful. Now, Gay, the main reason I actually came across your book and you brought up your wife multiple times. I was working with a coach. Coach recommended the book. And I, I mean, I have to ask this, you know, you, you talk about, you know, when we're eating too much or eating things we shouldn't be eating too much, drinking too much, um, upping the doses of whatever we might be taking. Why is it that we do that? I mean, I, I'm trying to find the answer there. It's like, why can't we allow ourselves to find the joy? Like, why are we wired in that sense to, you know, experience joy financially, but then on a relationship perspective, we're like, you know what, let me crush that part. You know, I, I'm so curious. Well, it has to do with fear. Because what happens, if you make some kind of change, let me put it in very blunt terms of addiction. Like uh, later on this afternoon, I'm going to play golf with a friend of mine who has 17 years of sobriety. And so we often talk about recovery kind of issues. And But here's the interesting thing. He quit drinking way before that. He's in his 70s now. And he quit drinking at one point way before that. And then he got to feeling so good after he quit drinking that he was just, you know, like a paragon. And then he said almost the last thought he had before he took another drink was, gosh, I've never felt so good in my life. Boom. He took a drink and then was blacked out for nine years, basically, and then kind of came back to and quit. And now he's been sober and clean for 17 years. So, but that's a classic example of an upper limit. A person gets to feeling good, even if only for 10 seconds, you know, you get that new feeling inside. I remember in my early 20s, I smoked cigarettes. I come from a family where pretty much everybody smokes cigarettes. It's, uh, uh, in fact, the one uncle who did not smoke in my family, people always talked about it. You know, why Bob didn't smoke. <laughs> so it was a family of chain smokers, basically. They killed many of them. And 
So I started smoking when I was oh, in college, I guess, and smoked for a few years there. And I got to where I was coughing all the time and had a cold three or four times a year. And so I just knew I had to quit. But several times I tried to quit and I'd go for three or four days. And I think what happened, you know, I would begin to open up a little and I didn't know how to handle that. And so I would fear would take over again and I would go back to my addiction. But here's what really helped me out. I figured out one time I quit smoking that if I breathed every time I was scared, if I took a whole bunch of what I called an oxygen cocktail, I would go (sighs) until the craving went away. I would deliver myself this big oxygen cocktail and I cured myself of smoking by just imbibing an oxygen cocktail every time I had this craving for cigarettes. It took me three days, basically, until the cravings disappeared. That is insanely powerful, to say the least. And you have multiple, uh, I don't want to call them things, but practices within the book that help with that, especially there was one with worry. I actually screenshotted it. So it's the background on my phone. Anytime I feel worry and I'm not going to give it away. I want people to get this book specifically if they haven't yet, because it's been an absolute game changer. I actually screenshot it. So it's the back of my phone. Every time I go to look at my phone, if I ever feel worry, I look at it. I read the steps as to how to eliminate worry and I'm good. And it, it's literally that powerful. But you mentioned the word upper limits. I do want to decode what that actually means for people that are listening to this that may not know. It may be a rather basic question here, but I just want people to be you know, fully aware of what we're actually talking about. The upper limit. Correct. Yes. Well, the upper limit is the tendency to sabotage yourself when you get past your more familiar level of where you are in life. Like you have a, a success in the world, or you have a breakthrough in intimacy with your beloved, or you get a promotion. It's kind of like you get your head up above where you used to be. In Australia, they have this this, uh, phrase called the tall poppy syndrome. You know, you're not supposed to stick your head up above the rest of the poppies. And so everybody has some version of the tall poppy syndrome, the tendency to knock ourselves back down when we're experiencing more success. And It's based in fear because what happens is you get that new burst of energy through you and you're not sure what to do with that and up comes a fear and then the fears look like various things like the fear that many people who come here struggle with is the fear of outdoing other people. Like they feel guilty because they've got to be a multimillionaire and their cousin Fred and their brother Sam and their Aunt Agatha are still struggling. And so th- those kinds of conversations go on in them, you know, like, and that upper limits them in a sense because then they don't get to enjoy what they've created because they're going around feeling guilty all the time. Remember what I define as wealth, you know, having everything you really want and really enjoying everything you have. And so right. those two things need to be working in harmony with each other. So it's ultimately about fear and everything in the big leap is an antidote to fear. That's powerful. uh, By the way, do you mind if I ask you a question? Please do. Um, You seem like a very open to learning person. And I'm curious, were you born that way or did somebody set off that spark in you? That's actually a great question. It's probably the first question, first person to ever ask me that question. I'm 27 years old. And I mean, I've done a ton of speaking around the country. I worked with Damon John of Shark Tank. So you could probably see him right behind me. Um, you know, I think my willingness to learn is probably the answer to one of those questions you were mentioning earlier. What, what are the top three or five things that I absolutely love? And I think it's being able to learn, being able to have a conversation with someone like yourself. But to answer the question, I think it was something that I had to do um, or had to create within myself. Um, And maybe I could go against that and say that my willingness to learn at younger ages was more rebellious, meaning I wanted to push limits to see, um, you know, troublesome types of things. I mean, I've been arrested. I talk about it openly. Hey, gay, we have that in common, right? You're pointing at yourself. Um, You know, I've pushed limits in multiple different senses, whether it was physically to the point where I needed two shoulder surgeries. I, I just mentioned I got arrested. I've done crazier things than that. Now it's more mature learning. You know, it's, it's how can I educate myself 
in, in regards to mentorship, in regards to coaches, in regards to people that have been there, done that. Um, so that's really where it comes from. But I don't think it was necessarily something that I was born with. I think it was more so something that was formed over the course of my journey, you know? Uh-huh. I'm always interested in that, you know, who sets off the spark of learning in us. I, I can think of various members of my family who did it with me. Um, but uh, sometimes maybe it's something you're born with too. But I always look for that in people. You know, I, I used to do a lot of uh, corporate consulting with executives and things like that, especially back during the 90s when my book, The Corporate Mystic, came out. And I found that a lot of people at the very high levels in business have that incredible openness to learning. Like I coached Michael Dell and his executives down at Dell Computer many times back during the uh, uh, 90s. And, and they were in a, in a period of explosive growth. So Michael had become a billionaire at that point, and several of the executives had become 100 millionaires through the process. So they're operating at a very high level. And yet, in every case, they were able to find ways they were still limiting themselves. And so it doesn't matter, you know, what level of the game you're at, because I've worked with uh, you know, traumatized kids in, in war zones too. And we find exactly the same kind of thing. We're all upper limiting ourselves. We need to find out why so we can remove those upper limits. Yeah, it's super powerful. I mean, that's one of the reasons, that's one of the things that I noticed with myself was that the upper limits that I created, and I'm still in the process of this, you know, I think it's a process. I don't think it's something that happens overnight, but I realized I had upper limits in places that I didn't even know existed, whether that was financially, I would hit a certain number in my bank account. And the next thing you know, I would see it dwindle down and I'm like, what the hell's happening? You know? Um, but that's exactly why you're here. So that we could amplify this message some more, get it out there, make sure people are getting this book. But Gay, I have to ask, you, you know, you've done a ton of consulting. You've done a ton of coaching and things of that nature. What is a question you wish more people would ask you and how would you answer it? Oh, well, you've sort of touched on it already. Like, how do you find out what you most want and love to do in the world? You know, like those questions can only be answered by a deep dive in the internal direction. You can't go around asking somebody, what the meaning of life should I have? You know, people will tell you that, but it doesn't mean anything because you haven't chosen it for yourself. And so even if you have a lot of great programming about what's possible in life, at some point you've got to ask yourself, what kind of spin do I want to put on this life? What is the sacred thing that I'm here to produce? And I think that Asking that question of ourselves is profoundly useful. Uh, there are two types of people in the world, people that have asked themselves that question and do that on a regular basis, and people who haven't yet learned to ask that question. And I'm here to get all those people that don't know how to know how already. Right. I love that. Now, maybe this is a little bit more personal, Gabe, but, and all of this is really personal, but let's go a little bit deeper. You know, your relationship, I believe it's 30 plus years of marriage, if I'm not, correct 40. me. 40, 40. 40, okay. What do you feel like are the top keys to maintaining a, you know, a healthy and ever-growing relationship? I mean, uh, as mentioned, I'm 27 years old. I live in New York City. It's super competitive here. Even in the relationship space, it's super competitive, you know? Um, we have things like social media that throw us off from time to time. So I find it to be, to be challenging at, at times, you know? Uh, I'm just curious what you feel like is the, those top keys or maybe characteristics or traits that, you know, kept your relationship strong. Well, emotional transparency is a key. For me, I came into, uh, I didn't meet my wife, Katie, until I was 34 years old. And so in my 20s, I think I made every relationship mistake that was possible to make. Um, I always say my relationships were like uh, the trajectory of the Titanic. They would start with great fanfare and there they kept hitting the same iceberg over and over right. and over again. But I hadn't realized the iceberg was in here, and I was all frozen up with my emotions. I never talked about what I was angry about or what I was scared about or what I was sad about. I had to get good at those things in order to have the kind of relationship Katie and I have, because I came into that relationship with really high hopes, but I didn't have the skills. So we figured out early in our relationship that we wanted to be emotionally transparent to each other. In other words... I, was, I didn't want that conversation ever to happen again where I said to the other person, 
what are you feeling? You look like you're upset. And the other person would say, nope, I'm fine. You know, but they really were upset. I just was tired of that. You know, that happened so much in my early family growing up. And so we made this deal with each other to be emotionally transparent. You know, that if, if I was upset, I would say it. If I was angry, if I was happy, I'd say it. And she would too. And so we made this deal with each other. And it worked wonders. It really did. It didn't always. I mean, we sometimes would blow it. You know, like one time was really an important one. I was in the middle of criticizing Katie for something. And um, at the time, I came in with a real critical streak in me, as she did too. So we had to struggle with that. But I was criticizing her for something. And all of a sudden, I had this body insight. Oh, I'm sort of sounding angry yeah, 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 with my voice. But what I actually am feeling inside is fear. My mm. belly's tight. And that was a key shift for me because I realized, oh, a lot of the times when I'm expressing anger, I'm actually scared. And I looked a little deeper, and I also felt there was some sadness down in there, too. And I can remember that first moment of saying that to Katie. I, I caught myself in the middle of it, and I said, you know, I hear, him, I hear myself sounding irritated, but what I just realized is I'm scared. And she kind of like, wow, you know, that was an openness, a moment of intimacy that we hadn't been in before. And so it really made things, as we learned to communicate with each other at that kind of level, it really made things move faster. So being emotionally transparent, that's one big thing. Number two, this was so huge. And that is we made an agreement not to criticize and blame each other, but to take healthy responsibility for the things that came up. So if something comes up and I say, you and I are having an argument, and I say, this is your fault. You're going to have to apologize to me or we're not going to speak again. And you say, well, wait a minute. This isn't exactly my fault. This is your fault. And then we get into a dialogue of whose fault it is. Okay, that's how many arguments go, right? For sure. Yeah. Well, that gets solved if each person takes healthy responsibility. And I'm not, not talking about blame. It's not talking, I'm to blame. It's saying, oh, hmm, why would I be creating that in my life right now? Hmm, hmm, I'm creating it. Hmm, why would I create that? Because the moment you ask that question, a lot of times you get an immediate answer. Right, right. That's powerful. That's definitely yeah. powerful. So. Let me ask you this. How did you get to the point where you were able to be self-aware in the moment? So, for instance, you were just giving me the example of verbally anger was coming out of your mouth, but you were able to internally realize that you had some sadness or whatever characteristic you were, you know, emotion, I should say, that you were feeling inside. How did you get to the point to be able to realize that in the moment? And I get oftentimes people say, Matt, you're a very self-aware person. They always tell me I'm very self-aware, but I'm not self-aware to the point where I'm able to realize it in the moment. It's maybe an hour after, two hours after. So I'm curious. I would love to be able to up my self-awareness game to the point where you have it. Well, I, that story I just told you about ca catching myself in the middle of criticizing, that was probably about two years into our relationship. So okay. it didn't happen overnight, I can guarantee you. It, but, you know, in a way, what, what you have to do, whether it takes you two months or two years, is you just have to keep recommitting to the principle. You know, like many, many, many times we would get into an argument with each other and then realize we weren't being emotionally transparent and we were blaming. We were violating our two sacred principles. And so we would have to go through a process again of, Okay, let's commit again to taking healthy responsibility and being emotionally honest with each other. So we'd recommit. It's like uh, when my daughter was learning to ride a horse, she would fall off the horse and I would freak out. But the trainer would always tell me, if she's not falling off the horse occasionally, she's not going to learn to stay on all the time. You know, she's right. got to... She's got to and the same thing with skiing. I don't ski anymore. I'm trying to save my knees for golf and uh, uh, hiking, biking, that kind of thing. But um, I used to play a lot of squash and do a lot of skiing. And in skiing particularly, they always say if you're not falling, you're not learning. 
And so the same thing in relationship, you've got to fail and then recommit, fail and recommit. And about the 500th one of those, one day it kind of sticks, you know, like Katie and I, well, I know for sure we've lived in this house here for uh, about 20 years now. And neither one of us have said a cross word to the other in that 20 years or had an argument or anything like that. Once you learn these principles, it takes you a while, but it's like learning to ride a bike. You can get on it after 15 years and still ride. That's so powerful. And I think what it comes down to from what I'm hearing at least is the willingness, right? You, you need to have willingness. So maybe someone's listening to this right now. I'm curious if someone's listening to this right now and you know, they feel defeated in some part of their life, it doesn't even need to be relationships. What's your advice to re-spark willingness to get back up and try? I'm just looking at a, a, a wristband that we give out uh, at our training sometimes. Uh, it, it's a little silicon wristband, and it uh, says, breathe, move, love on it. And if you get stuck like that, if you're just really stuck, the first thing you do is remember to breathe. Because if you take three easy breaths, this has been scientifically proven, if you take three easy, slow breaths, it begins to reset your body chemistry. It begins to quiet down the stress chemistry of the body. So the first thing to do is take some big, deep breaths and just connect with life energy again. Move means to literally move your body around and find something, some movement to take out. It might be mailing a letter or sweeping a front porch or some kind of movement. Um, if you're sitting in your car, maybe it's just wriggling around a little bit. Uh, the third one, love, means to love as much as you can from wherever you are. You know, it may sound corny to hear this, but love really is the great healer in the sense that only love can embrace its opposite. So you can actually love yourself for hating yourself sometimes. It gets bigger than whatever you're feeling. And that's the immense power of love. It creates space around whatever you're genuinely loving. Uh, in one of my other books, Learning to Love Yourself, I happened to write it the same year as I met my wife. And so I don't think it's any mystery that I had this big experience of learning how to love myself. And then into my life came a love from out here, outside, like the I've never known before. Right. I love that. I love that. So yeah, I mean, it does come down to loving yourself before I, I guess someone else can love you, right? Yeah, I think we always attract the person that's appropriate. You know, like when I was very critical on myself, I had the most critical girlfriend. I could not do a thing right with her. You uh. know? And we just lived in this constant thing of her criticizing me, me criticizing her, man, yeah, 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 all the time. I couldn't stand that for 10 seconds today, I swear. Right. Right. So, Gay, tell me about the new book you have coming out. By the way, I've been over here taking notes. So, if you see me looking down, I promise you, I'm over here writing down everything you're saying. You got the oh, new good. book coming out called Conscious Luck out in May. Yes. What I just got the galley proofs for it. Uh, they sent me a, uh, two copies the other day. And um, I'm having my proofreader read through it. But uh, Conscious Luck, if, I don't know if you can see the subtitle. It says, Eight Secrets to Intentionally Change Your Fortune. Okay. And so, what it's about, I've worked with a lot of people where once they changed a certain thing in their life, they suddenly started getting luckier. They started meeting the right person at the right time, or they started finding the parking place just right. And, you know, whatever it was, large or small, they felt like their luck improved. And so we boiled it down to these eight things that if you do them, your luck tends to take a jump. If you do any of them, it will take a jump. But if you do all eight of them together, and so we have this book coming out. And very shortly, uh, as a matter of fact, if they go to consciousluck.com, uh, you can put your name on a list. And we're about to send out the first free chapter of this, which has a lot of the basic information in it. So uh, if you go to consciousluck.com, you can uh, put your name on that list. So, Gay, why write this book at this point in your journey? What, what came over you? What compelled you to say, all right, it is time for me to put out this book on, you know, what we've been able to accumulate over the course of X amount of years coaching that you've realized like, hey, these things need to be in place. Well, when I was 27 years old, speaking of 27 years old, 
I made a deal with the universe. Okay. And later on, I would find that Buckminster Fuller did exactly the same thing at about that age, I believe. Um, I had this moment of realization. It was after I lost the weight and all that kind of thing. I, I had this moment of realization that I did not have any idea what I really wanted to do in life. I was a teacher at a school for delinquent boys, and I was beginning to work on my master's in counseling psychology, but I really didn't have any calling, you know, nothing I could feel in my heart. And so I made this deal one day. I don't know where the idea came to me, but I said to the universe, okay, I'm going to put myself at your disposal. You just kind of point me in the direction of where I'm going to let go of control and let somebody else figure this out. And oh boy, did the universe respond. First, it knocked me on my bottom. I slipped on the ice and smacked my head on the cold road. And, um, I didn't knock myself out, but I kind of knocked myself out of my normal state of consciousness. And in that moment, I had that deeper experience of pure consciousness than I'd ever had in my life. I could feel down through all the layers of emotion that I'd never expressed and down to the very essence of things. And I saw that we're all beings on this beam of consciousness, and it's up to us to craft it however we want in our lives. And so that was my deal with the universe. I said, okay, just make some good use of me. I, you know, I want to be of service in some way. And so then this thing happened, and right after that, who should I meet but a Harvard professor who had gone to India and came back and changed his name to Ramdas, and I met him when he just came back from India when he had a little group of followers, about a dozen people, and I basically asked him, hey, what would you do if you were me? And he said, well, I'd, I'd go learn some breathing exercises and maybe learn to meditate. And so I did exactly what he suggested because the universe must have had some good reason for putting him right in my path at that time. So I've tended to follow those cues a lot. And a lot of this is in the book, Conscious Luck, about how to do that, um, because there's a technology to it. I didn't know that at the time. I was just kind of following my impulses, but I, I finally kind of figured out some of the mechanisms of it. And some of that's in the big leap, but I'm really excited to share it uh, with the uh, Conscious Luck book. I love it. And I'm glad we're able to amplify it here and make sure people know about this. But I'm curious, you sparked my curiosity here, Gay, when it comes down to surrendering, right? You're talking about this deal you made with the universe. What is, and this is actually a question I've asked multiple times now. What is the correlation between believing that what's meant to happen is going to happen plus working for it? I'm trying to figure that out, right? It's like, can I lay in my bed all day because I surrendered and I said, you know, universe, take control here. What's going to happen is going to happen and I'm, you know, I'm going to accept it. And I can lay in my bed all day, maybe not do as much work and the things are going to happen. Like I'm, I'm always trying to figure this out. Well, I think it's a dynamic balance between both of those things. Uh, and I explain that in a moment, but let me tinker with the word surrender for a moment. I very seldom use that word because it implies an up-down kind of thing. You surrender to some higher force or something like that. But if you think about it, you are the universe. I am the universe. Agreed. There is no me over here and the universe here. I'm an expression of it, and I'm made out of the same stuff as everything else. It's just arranged a little bit differently. And so all of us have this same essence to us. And so I don't think of it as surrendering to any force. I think of it as simply opening up and getting out of our own way and letting go of the illusion of separateness. And as you do that, you become imbued with more of that es essential universal creative force. We are that force already. Where would we have come from if we were not that creative force? But we all come here through the same process. But here we're at a stage of evolution, I believe, where we need to participate in our own evolution. 
where it's no longer possible to just evolve like a worm turning into a butterfly, but we need to participate with it in order to bring into form the kinds of things that will really serve us in the next stage of evolution. Right, right, right. That is the answer I needed to hear. That, that is exactly why I'm in this moment right now. I needed to hear that. But Gay, what is one thing, if people could only take away one thing from your, your upcoming book, what would you want that one thing to be and why? Beautiful question. Here's what I want them to do. You just saw me do it. I took a breath and I wondered inside. And so the great gift is the gift of wondering, the actual experience of wondering. I want people to live in wonder. That's why I love this, uh, this um, bumper sticker. That's a great bumper sticker. <laughs> I love this. You know, if you're not in awe, you're not paying attention. I want people through the big leap and, and the new book, Conscious Luck, to live in wonder all the time. Because if you think about it, Human beings are living in wonder or they're living in some version of fear. The two, and wonder is such a much more powerful way of being. In reading Einstein's notebooks, you see that at one point he said he wondered about a problem in physics every day for 27 years. You know, yeah. he just consciously wondered about it and kind of played with it. And that's exactly what I'm getting at, the act of actually hmm, bringing wonder to light in your life. That's awesome. I love it. And I'm glad you thought the question was beautiful. I mean, I, I want to make sure that this experience is memorable for you as well. So I, I definitely appreciate that. So to get more personal here, Gay, and this is always how we wrap up the show, I'm going to ask you a rather kind of cliche question, but I'm going to reverse engineer it to get a little bit deeper. I have to know what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Mm. Here again, I'm going to just evoke a moment of wonder. <laughs> ah, Jerry Jones. I remember him sitting across a table from me in Portland, Oregon at the Multnomah Club. Okay. Jerry Jones, and, just to clear it up, Jerry Jones, Dallas Cowboys, Jerry Jones. Oh, oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Jerry Jones, the big developer in the, nor in the Northwest, uh, now passed okay. on. But uh, okay. J Jerry Jones was a kind of a legendary figure in Portland uh, real estate where he, he was first person to oh, do that thing where they remodel Victorians and all that. But anyway, made a fortune in the, um, in the real estate and such business. And um, so he said to me one time, the best deals you'll ever do are the deals you don't do. Mm. In other words, the things you say no to will catapult your evolution faster than the ones you say yes to. And so, of course, you have to do both. You need to. But he was saying most of us have a pretty good yes instinct, but some of us get blurred with, oh, gee, I could make a lot of money off that. It's not exactly what I want to do, but I bet if I, you know, once you start making those compromised kinds of things, then you blow your direct relationship with creativity. That must be preserved at all costs. Once you start trading that for something else, you know, you're in trouble. So we got to preserve that and use it for the things we most love to do. That's our sacred birthright and we must not squander that. Right. That's powerful as well. Listen, everything that you're saying right now is resonating with me on a high level. I, I'm over here, like I said, writing it down. But to reverse engineer that question, I asked you, what's the best piece of advice you ever received? What's a piece of advice that was given to you that you didn't want to hear, but ended up proving to be true over time? <laughs> The thing that just flashed into my mind was in 1970, maybe, somewhere around 1970, I was running a halfway house for delinquent boys. And I'm a terrible administrator. And I did not know that until I tried to administer a thing. And even though it was a very small organization, I managed to screw up just about every possible way. And I remember the day the big boss called me in and said, I want you to look for another job. And, you know, and I was defensive about that. And he said, look, admit it. 
you're not any good at this. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> I could feel it echoing <laughs> through my body. But, you know, the thing was, he was right. I was trying to put wings on a pig, you know, it just wasn't working. And he even made the suggestion, you know, maybe you ought to go back and get your PhD. Maybe in the act of doing that, you know, this will discover, help you discover. So anyway, one thing led to the other, but uh, I remember that it was like a gut punch when I first heard it. Right, right. But it was wow. the greatest gift of my life. That's, that's why I asked the question because every time I do, and you know, it's funny, people like to ask me that question being that I've asked it a, a bunch of times. And I always say my answer is the fact that my parents always told me to do my homework, study, do your book reports, read. And I was just like, no, you know, I always told them, no, I was, as mentioned earlier, I was very rebellious. And what that ended up doing was, you know, I got kicked out of two high schools and I failed out of college. And then I ended up going back, graduated with Dean's List Honors, uh, became more involved on college campuses, which is how I met Damon. And next thing you know, that was my first job right out of college, you know? So uh, like you said, it's your greatest gift at the end of the day and, and what comes about from it. So I appreciate the transparency and you sharing that. But Gate, to respect your time here, I, I want to make sure that I'm respecting your time. I know you're a busy man. You got some golf to play today as well. So uh, <laughs> to make sure I'm respecting your time, if you could only give one piece of universal advice for the rest of your life, what would that be? It would be the same thing that's on the wristband. Breathe, move, love. Love as much as you can from wherever you find yourself. I love that. I absolutely love it. Gay, yeah, I've loved having the opportunity to have you here as well. Uh, I'm going to make sure all of your links and where to get the book and all that good stuff is in the show notes of this episode. But again, I just want to express my gratitude to you for hopping on here, adding a ton of value and uh, continue putting out these books. These books are absolutely game changers. I love them. Thank you. Appreciate it. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, from our friend Gay Hendricks. Now, first and foremost, I need to make sure, I need to urge you to make sure you are connecting with Gay. I have all of his social links in the show notes of this episode, his website, where you can get his books, all of that good stuff can be found in the show notes of this episode. But on top of connecting with Gay, I need to urge you to make sure you are sharing this episode. You are still digesting, I'm still digesting all of the amazing information that we recorded while and now amplifying this message to all of you. So I wanna make sure that you're sharing this because there is so much good in this episode, right? You could level up in so many areas of your life from your business to your personal relationship with your significant other and everything in between that. Seriously, this is exactly how you live your best life and sharing this positivity today, the message that we're amplifying here on Decoding Success with Gay Hendricks can mean the absolute world to someone in your circle. So I just wanted to convey that message to you one more time, urge you to make sure you're connecting with Gay, to make sure you're sharing it, and if you have haven't yet leaving us a rating and review five stars four stars three two one i don't care i just want to hear your genuine feedback about how we can continue adding value to your life and that's exactly what means the world to us here at decoding success so until next time everyone be blessed peace